Welcome back to the workroom. My name is Dr. Garsang Wong. And I'm Lila Flavin. And we welcome you to uh, our weekly workroom space where we are spending some quality time together, kicking back from the work week, connecting, learning together. So last week, we talked about um, naming emotions and also dealing with emotions. And we touched a little bit on kind of what happens when we try to push emotions away. Lila shared a really illustrative story about dealing with hard things at work, but not processing it in the moment and then dealing with it later. And so we thought it'd be useful to expand on that topic on, you know, how do we move emotions around and kind of what happens to them? What's that process like? Yeah, it was, it was exciting to hear how much people connected to this idea that Uh, like, wow, people actually have emotions at work. And if those emotions are kind of pushed away or pushed down as we're often encouraged to do, like they're gonna, they're gonna pop up in other areas. So specifically, I think the word that doctors use a lot to talk about this is compartmentalizing. Like, I think it's almost like thought of as like a funny joke, like how much doctors have to compartmentalize. Like there's this stereotype of a physician who is just like dealing with massive traumas, dealing with things going on. And then somehow stuffing it all down and returning home with like a smile on their face. Like that's kind of this sort of stereotype. But I think the more I've been working with people, the more I've realized people talk about this a lot. Like this idea of consciously choosing to like put things away for later, put away hard feelings, hard things for later. In therapy, specifically in a modality of therapy called psychodynamic therapy, it's more kind of insight oriented, recognizing that there's an unconscious part of the mind as well as a conscious part of the mind, there's kind of a framework for understanding this process of kind of moving emotions around, uh, whether it's unconscious or conscious. And we're kind of, we're going to kind of expand on that later, but I guess, Lila, how do you, how do you understand compartmentalizing and how have you heard other people talk about that? I have this kind of visual that comes to mind is like, I imagine this cabinet or this like set of drawers and people are kind of intentionally taking something that is too much for them in the moment. And they're like folding it up and like tucking it away and putting it into that compartment. And like, I think it can be incredibly useful. And I I think there's this tendency to decide that compartmentalizing is either like incredible or it's like the worst thing ever. I think there's a lot of nuance to it. Like it's, it can be incredibly useful. I think the, the most concrete way I think about it at work is let's say you go into one patient room And that patient's really angry with you because something didn't go the way they want it to. And they're yelling at you and they're upset with their care. And you feel, you feel powerless. You feel like unappreciated. The second you leave that room and walk into another room, you're someone else's doctor who has like totally different expectations. And you can't carry in that frustration and that powerlessness because this person has their new problem that they want you to be there for. Mm -hmm. So in those 15 steps, when you're walking from one room to the next, like you're actively or like it's an active process that I'm doing. I'm like tucking away the thing that just happened, putting it in onto a shelf. I'll visit that later. Like I need to walk into this room now. And it can be anything from being yelled at versus like really being in like a crisis situation where maybe you're at a code or you're, you're really scared for what's going to happen to this person. And then five minutes later, you may have to go and draw labs from somebody else who who doesn't want to see that fear. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's like a really, really necessary and vital part of our jobs. I think part of a lot of jobs to be able to put things away for the time being. 
yeah, it's it's so incredibly common in the medical field because unfortunately we we do have to deal with hard things. I myself during intern year, there, I was in the emergency room working as a an emergency medicine physician, which <laughs> is so out of our mm-hmm. comfort zone. But uh, we, I had an encounter where there was a cardiac arrest and we were really trying to resuscitate this person and, and unfortunately didn't succeed. And I think that that was really one of my first experiences with death and seeing someone pass away in front of me. And it was tough, but also kind of chilling how little I allowed myself to feel for Mm -hmm. them in that moment, Mm -hmm. because I still had another eight hours to go in my shift. Mm -hmm. And the emergency room is, is always pretty busy. So we as a team held a moment of silence for the patient, which I thought was really important for the leaders to do. And yet beyond that, we didn't kind of have time to process and, and I didn't really have time to let myself feel that sadness for, for that other person. That's so rampant in other fields that don't deal with emotions like we do because they don't have time. It it makes a lot of sense. Like they have to pick up and continue to work in a really fast paced environment. So Mm -hmm. were you, were you conscious at the time of like, I'm putting this experience away because I have eight more hours of my shift. Like I can't go there. Do you think it was a choice? No, I, which I think is why it was kind of chilling. It was like, well, I'm, I'm not feeling as sad or shaken as I thought it would be with kind of one of my first encounters with someone passing away right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Like, should I, should I be more sad or like, why am I not more mm-hmm. sad than I am? So that kind of plays into this idea of unconsciously our body does, our mind does a lot to protect ourselves and we'll, we'll define that more. Right. Especially with something like death. It's like the, the feelings are so big and so scary that, that the urge to push it away is even stronger. Whereas mm-hmm. that's even more something that, that needs to be felt, but like the bigger it gets, the more it's like, ah, too much. Mm-hmm. Okay, other question for you about this. Did you find after you pushed it away for the work shift, did you find that you took it out later or like once it was pushed away, it was kind of gone? That's a good question. I, it was, it was a couple of years ago, so I don't exactly remember, but I think typically my coping style is to withdraw, get quiet. You know, when I come home from work, I, I tend to just kind of binge a guilty pleasure, whether it be like food or TV. And it might just be that my personal style, I, I don't necessarily always talk it out or like I, know, I, I think I, I process a lot of things silently. Well, but, feeling something doesn't imply that you have to talk about it. You could be yeah. feeling it internally, silently. Right, right. And naming it silently. I don't yeah. think you're like a special breed of human that doesn't happen to, to need to feel their feelings. No, 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 absolutely not. No, and un, in fact, I think um, a lot of people maybe think that, but they, they are dealing with it in some way. And it just might not be, it's hard to kind of name or. yeah. When I think about like what you can miss sometimes by compartmentalizing, like here you were having your first experience watching someone die and like a part of you had to miss that because like you couldn't feel it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a loss for you too. Mm-hmm. And like, how could you know how to feel that by yourself? Like you need a lot of leadership and mentorship to like know how to be present or feel something like that. But like, even if, even if it's not bubbling up later, it's like a kind of a loss because feeling something is part of having the full experience of something. Right. Yeah. So if you don't allow that, then exactly you're missing out and all emotions have their place. Yeah. It's a powerful story. It's 
it wasn't that long ago for us that we were interns, like in the emergency room, potentially at a code. And yet mm-hmm. two years can make a huge difference in like what our daily experiences are with this. Yeah. Even back then we weren't, I, I didn't have any therapy training. So all of this language I didn't have. So I, I don't think I wouldn't, would have even been able to define that for myself back then. Hopefully yeah, I- for you all listening, a little bit of this language can, can maybe help make sense of your experience, whatever that may be. Yeah. I was about to say the same thing. Like, I think the experiences that you're going through as, as a medical student or as a resident are so extreme, like in terms of encountering like someone dying for the first time, um, that the, the skills that you need emotionally to like, be able to be present to that in any kind of emotional way are like level 10 advanced star, star, star. Like, like it takes a lot to be able Mm -hmm. to kind of be present to that. And that's not a part of what we learn. Like we learn a lot of things, but not like, okay, but like when you're witnessing death for the first time, how do you like not push it away? That's not something we ever learned. And also just want to make space for, um, I mean, obviously by nature of our professions, Lila and I are going to talk a lot about the medical field, but for all folks listening who are not in medicine, there's undoubtedly difficult feelings that, and, and experiences that come up at your workplace. And um, this is definitely applicable to, you don't have to be <laughs> dealing yeah. with death. It could be like a hard relationship or difficult work dynamic or whatever it may be. Yeah, that's a good segue because I've been noticing that this is something I talk to people a lot about compartmentalizing and pushing things away. Mm-hmm. And like one thing that comes up a lot is people talking about when somebody like it hurts them, a friend or a family member mm-hmm. says something hurtful. A lot of people, the urge is I need to put away that hurt feeling because like, I don't want to have to like feel this way towards this person. I don't want to be upset with this person. This person's mm-hmm. trying to, I don't know, throw me a birthday party. Like it's not convenient to be hurt right now. So I'm just going to put that away. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I hear that so much and I do that too. Like, oops, I'm feeling something that's like inconvenient to the moment. So right. like, therefore put it aside. And I, it, this is where the, the kind of compartmentalizing thing breaks down. Like I went from having like zero skills at compartmentalizing and kind of like feeling like I was kind of swimming in things constantly to becoming like really obsessed with compartmentalizing and like doing it all the time. <laughs> um, and now I think I've reached this like skepticism of compartmentalizing. Like I'm much, I'm, I'm, it's useful, but I'm quite skeptical of it. And the reason is because I think the implication with compartmentalizing is that you put it away in a drawer, but then you have to take it back out. Like mm-hmm. that, like, because the compartments fill up, right. like, it's not like they're like, in a, there's like a magical, like clearing system in there. Like right. they get full. So this breaks down for people when they're constantly compartmentalizing right. and then the, the drawers get like full and they're leaking and like spreading everywhere. Yeah. Like when I hear somebody say like, oh, you know, it was my birthday party. My friend had thrown it for me. I was so happy with them, but then they kind of said this really mean thing about my job. But like, I just put that away because like, I couldn't be upset about that. Mm-hmm. Like, then my question is like, okay, so when did you take it back out? Because otherwise it just is like, then you, you've got a file called like things I'm mad at my friend about that I haven't <laughs> dealt with. Right? And the file gets really big. So the, the thing I don't like about it that's hard is that like life always keeps coming at you. So like if you're probably putting something away, even if you really intend to take it back out, it could be that the next day, like something else has happened. And and so having this backlog of things you haven't dealt with, like that Mm -hmm. in of itself is a burden, even if you really do intend to take it back out. 
Yeah, because you're carrying it with you. And that's that's a beautiful example. And I think a really common one is conflicts with loved ones where it might be hard to express that you were hurt by someone that you loved. And it's probably coming from a place of like, oh, I love them. You want to be gracious towards them. You don't maybe want them to feel upset that they hurt you or something. But if you don't deal with it, whether it's by, in my mind, ideally talking to your friend about it and, and getting closure on the issue of saying like, hey, that really hurt me. Can we talk about it? I imagine it commonly will build up resentment and resentment until it explodes in some future thing. The conflict that breaks the straw on the camel's back, you start to just kind of vomit like, well, back then you did this and that really hurt me. <laughs> and then like this time, you know, you really upset me there and that was not fair. And then the friend might be blown away of like, what, where is this all coming from? And it's because it there was yeah. so much unprocessed backlog that is just coming out all at once is kind of a common story that I imagine. <laughs> that is such a good example. Like I've I've both been that person and on the receiving end of that, like when someone's like seven years ago, you said blah, and you're left with like, wait, seven years ago, like, where were we? What was happening? Like, what's Mm -hmm. what, why have you held on to this for seven years? Mm -hmm. Like it's counterintuitive, but like when you're hurt by a person, the sooner you tell them when it's a specific behavior, the better, because they can remember it and you know, and then you can, you have this chance of having some repair. Yeah, I think offering feedback is an act of love because it's hard. You would only kind of incur that cost in yourself, like take on that burden of potential kind of conflict or whatever, because you care about the results. Like you want that person to change. And I'm thinking about in high school, I had a a really important friendship and I went to a tiny school, like 60 some people in my class. So my default mode of avoid conflict, you know, avoid this person did not work. Um, so it was very, very pretty quickly. Yeah. I just, there was not space. Like the, all the classes were small. We were in the same yeah. class. We were all in the same extracurriculars. So I, it was really unfair, but yeah, I, I, um, we basically didn't talk for a, a period of time and somewhere along the way, I can't remember the exact conflict, but, um, there was a straw that broke and I wrote this person like a long email about like all my grievances, like bullet, mm-hmm. almost bullet pointed of like, I don't like when you do this. I don't like when you do that. You really hurt me with this. And, and they were just like, what is this? They were so hurt by it because they were like, why didn't you tell me this before? What am I supposed mm-hmm. to do about this now? You carried all this resentment towards me for so long. It's tough. <laughs> that is, that is such a specific period of life too. Yeah. Like <laughs> I remember in when I was in sixth or seventh grade, I had this best friend and we would routinely get in fights and we would write each other these long, long letters about like every (laughs) single thing. And yeah, it's always a backlog. It's never just the thing Then it becomes like all the other things. (laughs) It's like slightly satisfying to write. And like, even it was fun to like put in the mailbox. And then the second that that's over, it's like, oops, that's going to cause a lot more problems. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which one therapy activity that I have in mind is writing that letter that you don't send as just a way of like catharsis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we've kind of strayed. So we we went from work conflicts to high school drama, but back to the original topic, we're, we're really talking about this idea of defenses is kind of the official term in dynamic therapy. So this is kind of seeped in the uh, psychodynamic tradition, which harkens back to psychoanalysis from Freud, 
but I'm referencing a textbook by Dr. Deborah Cabanis, who writes a great intro textbook about this that, that we've both read. And she defines defenses as an unconscious and automatic way in which the mind responds to internal and external stress and emotional conflict. To reframe it in, in more digestible terms, basically, she specifies this as like an unconscious mode of acting, but we're talking about ways that we handle emotions in both conscious and unconscious ways. And it's really for the purpose of protecting ourselves in the moment from something that's really hard to handle, or maybe not the best time to handle in that moment. Right. A lot of times people talk about it in terms of anxiety, like a lot of these strong emotions and strong thoughts cause a lot of anxiety. In general, people don't like anxiety. So it's either unconsciously or consciously kind of suppressing those thoughts and feelings when they cause too much anxiety. And like the whole unconscious conscious thing is just like, if I were to ask you like, Hey, Garsing, are you aware right now that you're rationalizing? You might say, Oh, I had no idea. Or yeah, of course I'm doing that because it's helping me like go away, you know? Um, and so we can shift between doing it consciously or unconsciously. Like that's, that's significant. Um, but the, the point is that the anxiety doesn't go away with these mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of them can be healthy because it's hard to face hard things all the time. But when we use one too much or all the time, that causes problems. Right. So a little bit of compartmentalizing here and there, super helpful, even necessary. If it's the exclusive thing you do to get through hard emotions, that's going to cause some problems. Mm-hmm. If you understand that you are putting something in a box, then you can do something about it. And, and so consciousness is more preferable than, than an unconscious process where you don't even realize the impact of the conflict or the amount of distress or, or uncomfortability or sadness or whatever the emotion, the difficult emotion is that you're feeling. If you aren't aware of it, you can't do anything about it, but it's not going away. It's, it's just going to pop up somewhere else. And there's a whole host of technical terms for defenses that uh, illustrate specific ways that this can come up, maybe subject for another time, but just kind of want to introduce this idea that our minds can put away emotions without us even knowing in order to protect ourselves in that moment. Yeah. So a lot of psychodynamic therapists, a lot of their strategy is to help reveal these defenses. So help you to become more aware of the ways that you're trying to avoid your feelings. I'm thinking of this example. I was talking to my therapist a while ago and um, I was telling her that I was really angry about a situation. And as I was doing it, I was laughing a lot and like making a lot of jokes. And she was like, it's interesting how you're telling me you're angry, but you're laughing. Like, what's that about? And like, that was a way that she was showing me that I was trying to use humor to like kind of ease how angry I was. And like, I didn't even know, like if she had asked me, like, are you aware you're smiling and like cackling as you're telling the story? I'd be like, no, I'm angry. Of course not. (laughs) Um, And it it was illuminating. I was like, oh, wow. Like, I wonder when else I'm like laughing about things that are deeply upsetting to me. (laughs) Like, huh. So it can be really powerful to be um, like, have this kind of light shined on something that you're doing that you don't even know you're doing. And then you start to become more aware of it. And it's not like I'm never going to use humor. It's super helpful. It's more that it's nice to know when I'm using it and to choose it rather than it be a default to kind of avoid an intense feeling or discomfort of an intense feeling. Yeah. We as therapists are learning or we specifically are learning, but therapists are trained to help identify these defenses in play, especially 
if you're in a um, psychodynamic modality of, of therapy, although even if, if you're in a cognitive behavioral therapy modality, I think the corollary is, as we've talked about, identifying that triangle. So mm-hmm. connecting a situation, what were the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors around that? So like specifically, what was the feeling? What were you feeling in that moment? And and how come you were feeling that? And That's interesting. I've never thought about that. Like it would almost be like, okay, what's the behavior you're doing to try and manage that feeling? Mm-hmm. And yeah. are you consciously doing that behavior? Are you not even aware you're doing it right. as a way to kind of get away from it? Yeah. So it does fit into that framework, just in a different language. Yeah. I've had supervisors tell me they're two sides of the same coin. I think there are other more purists who are like, they're completely different ends of the spectrum. I think you and I both tried to read a lot of therapy books at the beginning of the year. So I, I myself had like both a cognitive behavioral therapy and a dynamic therapy book like open at the same time I was trying to flip back and forth so really maybe, that sounds stressful you're yeah, like was, one hand on each just well, like well literally I had like I had this sticky note which has fallen by the wayside but I was like Monday CBT Tuesday dynamic mm-hmm. Wednesday meds <laughs> and try <tried laughs> to like create some structure for learning but mm-hmm. maybe it's because of that approach that um yeah the lines really blur for me I think you can see the same thing it's different language to describe the same thing for me mm-hmm. yeah I've heard people say like the goals of therapy are similar like help people understand themselves better become more aware of how they're behaving how they're feeling right it's just the the interventions and the language if it's a behavioral model versus a dynamic model are mm-hmm. different Exactly. Yeah. I, I think the an unfair stereotype of cognitive behavioral therapy is that you do a lot of like worksheets and it doesn't necessarily have to be that, like you can develop a lot of insight from CBT too. Yeah. So coming back to kind of where we started with compartmentalizing, there's two kinds of problems that I think it can be really helpful with specifically using compartmentalizing. So the first problem that we talked about is like when you're literally at work and you need to switch modes really quickly. And the idea is that like, you're putting it away for like 15 minutes and then you're coming back to it. It's not like a day later, but like quick. But the other two times I think it's useful. One is with the people who have a big tendency to ruminate. And the second is with people with trauma, like mm-hmm. though in those times. So in the rumination case, so rumination, and this is going off of Brene Brown's definition of it in Atlas of the Heart. Mm-hmm. Um, rumination is this kind of constant churning of something in the past and specifically in relation to a mistake you made or a shortfall you think you had. Mm -hmm. Um, So this would be the situation where like I get home from work and not only am I thinking about work, but I'm thinking specifically about that one thing I said that I'm not happy with that I said. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going into like all the other times I've done something similar and what that must mean about me and what that must mean about me as a doctor and just kind of constantly. And rumination itself can be a form of avoidance. Like I'm ruminating such that I don't feel like this kind of grief about the day or this disappointment about, what happened. One option with rumination is to just feel the feeling, like let that feeling, whatever it is associated with what happened, go through you rather than trying to work at it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other one is to say like, I'm tired. I don't really have the capacity right now to figure out what happened. And I'm just going to put it in a box and Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back to it tomorrow. And like, I'm going to let that mistake go. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think rumination by definition is not productive. It's like, it's like self-punishment. So I'm a big fan of that for ruminators. Um, and then the other one was for people with trauma, like often they'll be any, any moment or any experience can bring them back to that trauma. 
And then they're kind of stuck in that place of reliving that trauma, reliving the emotions associated with it and giving that person permission. Like you can, you can both be set off and remember it and then choose to put it away. So with those people, like I'll often actually really work on visualizing this box. Like let's describe this box. You're going to put things in. Like maybe it's a box from your childhood that you love. Like let's describe the box together and then let's visualize like opening the box putting this traumatic memory in there or opening the box, like putting this mistake you made in there and we're going to leave it there for like a day. Mm -hmm. Um, So really like lean into this box compartmentalizing um, with people who are struggling with those kinds of issues. That's really like a a great mindfulness exercise and a practice in acceptance, accepting that this is what I'm feeling and it hurts. And the hurt is temporary because it's, it's, an emotion and emotions are temporary. I mentioned previously that I was like, I didn't really know how to compartmentalize in the beginning. And then I got really into it. So part of what helped me to become okay with it is when I was on an interview with, um, for psychiatry residency, I mentioned to one of the psychiatrists that it was really hard for me to let go of hard things that happened in the hospital. And he said to me, I have this box in my mind and it's always there. And when I see my patients for the day, after I'm done, I like put them into that box in my mind. And then when I go home to my wife, they're in that box. And so like, then when I go to the movies with her, I'm at the movies with her. And like, if I start thinking about my patients, like I'm putting them back in that box in my mind. And there was something about that. Like, I think I carried this sense of like, that it was like more noble or something to like, hold on to these things and like, keep thinking about them. Mm -hmm. Like that I kind of like owed it to people or like that meant I was really like connected And to have this like very seasoned person be like, no, I'm consciously putting them in that box so that I can show up the next day. And so that I can like be a good family member. And like that, that was, that was an effortful thing rather than that. It was something to be proud of that he, that you could constantly linger Mm -hmm. on carrying people with you. That really gave me permission. I was like, oh, I'm allowed to do this. And not only allowed, like it's kind of necessary to do this. And And I like that idea that it kind of lives in your mind. Like, it's not like you're putting it in a box somewhere far away. It's there. Mm-hmm. So it's there to access when you need it, but like mm-hmm. you can kind of put it away. Yeah. What do you personally do to take things out of the compartment and, and deal with them? I think the main thing is keeping the compartment relatively empty. So like really having a high standard for something that needs to be compartmentalized. Like, so a lot of things can be handled in the moment mm-hmm. and like really trusting myself that like, even if I'm tired, like I can come up with so many excuses, even if I'm tired, even if it's a nice time and I want to make sure it's still a nice time or like, even if I'm kind of busy, like there is time to deal with this. Like it doesn't take that long usually. Mm. Um, so in general, the com- like very selective about what I put in there would be like the first thing. And then trying to like give myself a time when I'm going to take it out. So That's like, okay, let's say my friend said something that really sucked and I'm upset about it, but it really isn't the right time. Like, when am I going to take it back out and kind of deciding that like, okay, I'll send them a text tomorrow, but it's got to be tomorrow. Like just mm-hmm. kind of having that time frame of like, here's when I'm going to cope. And I guess the third thing would just be like having really low standards for it. So like, I think people often think like, I'm thinking that time when you were in the emergency room, like I had this idea that like to grieve a patient who's died, I have to do a lot. Like I have to like have a ceremony. I have to like go to their funeral. Mm -hmm. Like I've got to like, like really high standards for it, which feel impossible to meet. Mm -hmm. And so my standard becomes like much smaller. Like it's usually like if, if a patient I know dies or if something really bad happens, like I'll read a poem in their honor Mm -hmm. and like, I'll read it, like make a time to read it to myself. And Mm -hmm. like, it takes a couple of minutes, but it's like, I'm 
doing something to honor them and to like feel them. That's right. very small. But I think sometimes it feels like the dealing with the feeling has to be so big that it's like a daunting thing. Yeah, that's that's really helpful for me. Just that even simple acts can be enough to process and relieve that compartment. I think maybe I wonder if with that experience with that patient, I didn't feel so much sadness because the leaders of the code team took that five minutes to acknowledge this gentleman passed away today. We did the best that we could to save him. And unfortunately, that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Even just that simple acknowledgement in that moment might have been enough to yeah. help me like not need to put it in the compartment because we dealt with it right then and there. Yeah. And that's not simple. Like it actually takes huge courage on the part of those people to be like, we did the best we could. This person died today. Like mm-hmm. that's everything in our system, like pushes us to keep moving and like not even do that. Right. So it's like that's a big deal that that happened. Right. And I also yeah. like, because it was emergency room, you didn't know this person. Mm-hmm. Like the people I'm thinking of when I read a poem or like thought of them consciously, like I got to know those people. So, mm-hmm. so there was like grief attached to it. It wasn't just like a scary experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about other ways that, you know, our listeners could find useful in terms of emptying out that compartment. Cause that's the hard piece, as you said, like taking things back out and emptying it. Yeah. I think that's where self-care really comes into play. And and again, self-care doesn't have to necessarily be tangible or like huge. It could just even be a taking five minutes to reflect on your day, acknowledge the parts that were maybe really tough and say like, wow, I had a really tough day today, treating yourself to like a little something, Um, but just like taking a moment to breathe and acknowledge and accept that something was hard. And putting it into words really helps a lot of people. So like we do this all the time with each other as coworkers, but like telling the story of something that happened Mm -hmm. like and telling it with some feeling to it then it's a shared thing like now it belongs to both of us it's not like just away in my compartment yeah going back to in therapy it's it's not so much the specific techniques or the insights or whatever the skills it's just having that connection with someone feeling like validated and heard and so it doesn't have to be a therapist. It could be a friend or a family member or a partner, but just don't go at it alone. <laughs> yeah. And like the idea, that, like you can take one thing out of the compartment at, t- at a time. Like people mm. think if I'm going into my compartment, I got to deal with all of it. And like, who would ever take on that task? Like that sounds terrible. Right. But like, if say, I don't know, I'm walking and I'm some smell reminds me of somebody or reminds me of a friend that I'm no longer in touch with. And that brings up some loss, like, that might've been something I shoved in the compartment, but now I'm like, okay, here it is. That doesn't mean I have to go look at the six other things that are beside it in the compartment. I like, I try and be so small with my expectations. Like I'm going to like think about this boss for the next 10 steps of my walk. And then it can go back in the compartment. Like it's kind of like exposure therapy, like super, super small. I'm going to feel it for 10 seconds. I'm going to try and feel it in my big toe. And then I'm going to like put it back in there. Like, yeah. Just teaching yourself that you're much stronger than you think. And like, you really can withstand these feelings. Right. I'm realizing we didn't talk so much about like the unconscious aspect, but, you know, just to realize that oftentimes our minds can unconsciously push away difficult feelings without us noticing in the moment. And so that's where taking the time to process something that was difficult and like asking yourself, how did I feel in that moment? Like, you know, finishing that CBT triangle or like sharing with someone else can help offer an outside perspective of like, 
wow, that sounds really hard. Like, how are you feeling? And then you might have a moment of, oh my God, how was I feeling? Like, I feel terrible. Like that was really hard. And and just bringing it out of the unconscious into the conscious, naming the emotion is really powerful in dealing with it. And if you don't deal with it, you'll just continue to carry it in the compartment and you don't even know what it's there. And if you don't know it's there, you can't deal with it. So, (laughs) right. That's true. Like even just opening up the compartment and seeing what's in there, that's a first step. That is more, you have more power than if you have something that's full of stuff and you don't even know what's in there. Mm -hmm. Did we do it justice? This compartmentalization topic? (laughs) We could could keep going. Yeah, we could. Yeah, we could definitely keep going. But this is just a little intro. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed listening. Take a look in your compartment. See what you find. (laughs) All right. See you next time. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. As a reminder, our views are our own. Content is for informational use only and should not be used as medical advice or substitute for therapy or psychiatric treatment. See you next time and stay curious.